0: Common Law Wives and Concubines Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture Stephen C. Perks This is a Reconstructionist Radio Production with LRNTeach.com Please visit kuiper.org forward slash books to download or purchase this book. Common Law Wives and Concubines Essays on Covenantal Christianity and Contemporary Western Culture Stephen C. Perks 2010, Kuiper Foundation, Taunton, England Narrated by Nathan Conkey Chapter 13 The Implications of the Information Revolution for the Future of the Christian Church Section 1 Who controls public opinion? Does the media inform and create public opinion? Or does public opinion inform the media? Or is it both at the same time? Who, or what, is the source of the opinions and ideology that stream forth endlessly from the media at the beginning of the 21st century? Who creates and controls the predominant worldview in society? What I have to say here assumes that in the the highly media-oriented and largely passive societies of the Western world, the media informs and substantially creates public opinion, It assumes, furthermore, that the media itself is informed largely by vocal and active minorities who work to influence and control society and important social institutions through the propagation of their ideology and social agenda. By the media, I mean the television networks, radio stations, newspapers, periodicals, movies, etc., all of which feature very predominantly in modern life, as the source of knowledge and, quote, truth, unquote. The answer to the question of who controls public opinion is predicated on the seemingly self-evident fact that the majority of people in society are silent and passive. They do not want to act, but are willing to be acted upon. They do not want to think for themselves. They are willing to let others do their thinking for them. They are lazy, in other words they will suck in the endless stream of information that comes from the television and newspapers without stopping to consider how their worldview and opinions are affected by such media. Unpalatable as it may seem, I believe this is largely true of modern society. But who influences the media, and through the media, society at large? The answer to this is that those who are motivated And active are the ones who influence the media. Where society is largely passive and silent, small activist groups, small compared with the masses that constitute society, that is, are able to implement their agenda in society through the influence they bring to bear upon important social institutions. The media today is a crucial factor in this process. Unless those who wish to change society, are able to win the media over to their cause in a significant way, their efforts will be a failure because public opinion will remain unchanged. It is through the media that the crucial softening up of public opinion takes place so that it becomes fertile ground for new ideologies and concepts of morality. Once this has been accomplished, it is much easier for groups to influence important social institutions and those who make decisions that affect the whole of society. This may take a long time, it is grand Fabianism, but it works very successfully. For example, homosexual practices could never have become a socially acceptable form of sexual behaviour in society today had they not been sanitised as a result of constant media influence on the mindset of the nation. The media has been in the forefront of this in virtually every other aspect of the sexual revolution. It constantly portrays those who oppose such practices as bigoted homophobes, who have an irrational hatred of, and a total lack of compassion for those who are portrayed as their innocent victims. The media has managed to argue that black is white and make it stick. It has succeeded in planting in the minds of many the idea that acceptance and toleration of such practices is the only reasonable, the only just, and the only compassionate attitude to those who behave in this way. This softening up of public opinion by the media was a necessary precursor to the new, liberated, gay culture that has blossomed in recent years. So successful was this softening up that gay couples can now flaunt their homosexuality in public and anyone who objects to or questions their rights to do so is deemed vicious and treated with the kind of disrespect and contempt that would be appropriate for a racist. This last point is not impertinent, since it affords a good example of how this softening-up process works. Gays are frequently lumped together with blacks, women and disadvantaged minorities that are reputedly treated badly by society. This tactic associates what is defined as a crime by God's law, homosexual acts, and has been deemed by most people to be a crime throughout most of Western history, with groups whose victimisation is evil. By thus associating those who commit evil acts, homosexuals, with those who are innocent of any crime related to their victimisation or supposed victimisation, for example, blacks and women, those who are critical of and oppose such evil acts, are associated in people's minds with racists and others who oppress innocent victims. Such a blurring of the distinctions between right and wrong, good and bad, is necessary if society is to adopt the new morality. But this is to call evil good and good evil, to substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 This total transformation of society's concept of morality has been accomplished through the media. It has been the same with socialism, though the process has been more subtle and the concentration of socialist influence has been more in the electronic and film media than the printed media, which has been more difficult for the socialists to capture, though not impossible, as became apparent with the election of the new Labour government in 1997. Section 2 Conspiracy theory versus the logic of ideology. This is not meant to sound like a conspiracy theory of history, at least not in the accepted sense. Activists are motivated people who try to change society in some way. It is such groups that inform those with power and influence in the media and through the media control society, whether they are capitalist, socialist, atheist or Christian. As we shall see, Although the church failed to do this in the 20th century, in former centuries she did exert such influence and control through the contemporary media. But conspiracy theory posits something more insidious than this. Conspiracy theory is the idea that an elite, and usually highly placed, group of people conspire secretly to pervert the course of justice and control society for their own personal ends. While I believe that such conspiracies do exist, I do not believe they have a significant effect on the course of history on the whole. I do not hold to the conspiracy theory of history. Rather, what I am arguing is, just as the logic of an idea will work itself out in the lives of the individuals who cherish that idea, so also the logic of the dominant ideology will work itself out practically in the life of the nation, and, furthermore, that it is through the media, as defined above, that these ideologies are introduced into society in modern Western nations. Ideas have consequences, in other words, and this is so for societies and nations, as well as for individuals. Hence, whatever ideology controls the media, or is able to exert its influence through the media, will influence and control our society, because it will shape the mindset of the greater part of the population, and will, by this means, Create the conditions necessary for its acceptance as quote, truth. Unquote. Once this has successfully been accomplished, such ideology can function as public truth, that is to say, as a form of religion. Those who refuse to accept this new orthodoxy, be it Christianity, socialism, democracy, feminism, Darwinism, gay rights, etc., will be treated as heretics by the communities for which it has become public truth. Its veracity will be deemed self-evident and without need of proof. And those who deny its validity will be deemed out of touch with reality, mad and possibly evil. This process, a form of conversion, to use religious terminology, may be, and usually is, for the most part worked out quite unself-consciously by society. Section 3. Media Status The majority of people in Western society today receive most of their information from the media. When it comes to the formation of an individual's overall worldview, the influence of the media is even greater, since it provides for most people a ready-made intellectual, social and often, especially in the case of newspapers, political perspective into which they will assimilate even the information they do not receive via the media. Since this is so for most people, the media's effect on society is very great. This almost ubiquitous presence of the media in modern Western culture gives it a unique status in society. The media does not simply present information, quote, the facts, unquote, or a way of interpreting those facts. It is itself now, intimately bound up with creating the facts it reports. It has become an integral part of the ideology it promulgates. Politicians and their policies are made and unmade by the media. Even prime ministers and presidents are credible as prime ministers and presidents if they have media credibility and utilise the media to their advantage. Today in America, a presidential candidate is unlikely to be elected if he has no media presence and credibility, regardless of what his policies are like. America proved the point with gusto when it elected a Hollywood actor as president. In Britain, the same is increasingly true. John Major managed to get into position as Prime Minister despite his lack of media credibility, but his deficit in this department blighted his premiership. He and the Conservative Party generally faced a challenge as much from the opposition's effective media posturing in comparison with the media sleaze that dogged the Conservatives during Major's premiership, as they did from any credible political challenge from the left, a point that is substantially borne out by Labour's attempt to move towards the middle ground previously held by the Conservatives. I say media sleaze because the Conservatives have no monopoly on political sleaze and new Labour could be made to look just as sleazy as the Conservatives. There's not a lot to choose between them, but Labour effectively won the media campaign over the sleaze issue. It would not be too far off the mark to say that media presence and the likely ratings one's media performance will create are as important as one's ability as a statesman for politicians in important government posts today. Perhaps some former politicians and statesmen who are considered to have been great leaders, would have little chance of meeting the criteria for office necessitated by today's ubiquitous media coverage of politics and the lives of those engaged in it. There is perhaps both good and bad in the constant media attention that politicians have to face today. Either way, it is a fact of political life at the beginning of the 21st century. The decisions of judges and juries are now overturned by the media's reopening of criminal and civil cases. Television programmes such as Rough Justice and the like are powerful tools in the hands of the media. This should not necessarily be taken as a criticism, simply a statement of facts. The media reporting of the trial of O.J. Simpson in the USA became a significant issue in the trial itself and its outcome. It was every bit as much perhaps more, a newsworthy item and certainly had greater implications for the process of justice as a whole than the trial itself. Media reporting on various wars and conflicts around the world helps to make these conflicts and the plight of those involved, along with the supposed justice or injustice of the causes that fuel them, important issues that governments must be seen by the public to be dealing with in an appropriate and effective way if their credibility and therefore their prospects of re-election are not to be harmed. Many more examples could be cited. The point is simply that the media is a powerful and important presence in modern society. It has a great deal of influence on society generally and on politicians in particular. Sometimes it uses this for good. Usually it does not. Either way, People respect the trustworthiness of the information they get from the media. They believe it, on the whole. I am speaking here of the greater part of the population. The media is authoritative, on the whole, for most people. Quote, It was on the television, unquote, people say, or, quote, It was on the radio, unquote. Therefore, it must be true. Similarly, there is a mystique to print, type text, has more authority than mere word of mouth. People will believe something they read more readily than the gossip they hear. They will treat it with more respect and take it as truth more easily. It is more difficult to controvert printed quote, facts unquote. There is something authoritative about printed matter that gossip, word of mouth, does not convey. Printed matter has something permanent and official about it. This is so even with the subject matter does not claim to be factual. Hence the influence of the novel and its power as a vehicle for articulating ideologies. The way the novels of Charles Dickens, for example, are treated almost as social histories is a good example of the danger this fact poses. Of course, such influence can be used for good as well. This is true of television and radio programmes also. These are channels of official information in the minds of many, although those who impute such authority to these media may do so quite unselfconsciously. There is also a sense in which the media becomes the real voice of the people or the nation in the perception of many, though again, this may be unselfconscious. People see the media as the voice of truth, as opposed to the voice of official authority, that is, government authority. The media represents, therefore, a different kind of authority. The media is often perceived as the charismatic voice of the people, as opposed to the official voice of government. Hence, the increasing use of media personalities as spokesmen for political parties, particularly during general elections. Of course, this may be, and usually is, quite untrue. But this is the way the media is often perceived, and this is an important point that we need to remember in short the media has a status and an authority that can be used either for good or bad this is a fact of life it will not go away if we ignore it or pretend it is not true like every other sphere of life the media must be captured for Christ and subjected to his lordship to pretend that it is not a vital strategic target in the christian war and the Christians can ignore it, is folly and will have significant consequences for the status of the church in society. Unfortunately, this was the church's attitude throughout most of the 20th century in at least most Western nations. Why? Section 4. The Church and the Media The church used to control what was one of the most important forms of media in Western Christendom. In some periods of history, the most important form of media, the pulpit. The church no longer has any significant influence on society because it does not control any form of media that is considered important by society. The pulpit used to be considered an important authority in Western Christendom, at least following the Reformation. This influence has now passed into the hands of atheists and pagans who have adopted alternative forms of media as a means of influencing society and bringing their ideologies to bear upon the life of the nation. The Church has, on the whole, been oblivious to what has been happening. In the 16th and 17th centuries, for example, the pulpit was the media. Kings would instruct their bishops to reinforce royal prerogatives through their direction of the clergy, and through the clergy, that is, the pulpit, they were able to influence the people. In other words, they would use the church hierarchy to gain access to the pulpit as a means of disseminating propaganda suited to their own cause. In the time of Puritan England, for instance, Charles I ordered his bishops to instruct parish incumbents to preach the royal prerogative and the divine right of kings. Absolute monarchy was to be taught as part and parcel of God's revealed will for man. The king lost control of the media. The pulpit... And then he lost his head. The pulpit was the media of the day. It was very powerful. Where the Puritans did not control the official pulpit of the established church, they established alternative pulpits as a means of communicating their message to the population. They set up lectureships, a kind of shadow pulpit, to replace the official line being promoted by Archbishop Laud et al., it is worth remembering that quote gathered unquote, "churches" started originally in England as churches within the official church. They were subversive organizations within the official church, not separatist churches. There was a clear line of differentiation between the early Puritans and the separatists on this point, and even the later Puritans who were independents prior to the Restoration were committed to the concept of a national established church. The lectureships they created as an alternative to the official pulpit, where they were denied access to it, proved to be a formidable obstacle to the king's effort to enforce his will through the official media of the established church. The Puritans created alternative media outlets for their message, and this hamstrung the official church's ability to control society through the church pulpit. One way or another, either as incumbents of parish churches or as unofficial pastors of gathered churches using lectureships to get their message across, licensed or unlicensed as preachers, the Puritans gained influence via the media of the day, preaching. Of course, making available such an alternative ministry was costly, and it was the merchants and middle class, among whom Puritanism was strong, that financed this alternative ministry Had it not been for the financial backing that the Puritan movement got from these quarters, it is doubtful that Puritan preachers could have had anything like the influence they did have. Christianity does not work by magic. God uses means to accomplish his purposes in history. Even Jesus' ministry was supported by at least a few wealthy followers. It was their ability to seize control of this important form of media, or where they could not do this, create new forms of media that were equivalent to it, that enabled the Puritans to have such an impact on the nation. The whole thing was media-oriented. What they did changed the nation, and indeed the world, permanently. Where Christians have controlled the pulpit when it was the media of the day, they have informed, and thereby controlled, public opinion, and therefore generally controlled society. In the past, people went to church to listen to preaching, it was a large part of their lives and affected their lives considerably. It led to changed lives and, as a result, to a changed society. The change in the content of preaching when Puritans took to the pulpit changed England for good and permanently. This was done not only through the official church pulpit but through alternative pulpits such as the lectureships and the unlicensed preaching of men like John Bunyan. Despite the restoration this produced a permanent change that has never been reversed, though it has been badly corrupted. The Puritans were able to do this because preaching was the media of the day. And the media is very powerful. Whoever controls the media will control public opinion and society. Even in the 18th and 19th centuries, the pulpit, that is, preaching, was still an important form of media among an increasing number of alternative forms of media. During this period, preaching, especially in evangelistic campaigns and revivals, became one of the major forms of entertainment for many people. People spent their free time attending these meetings. They went to revival meetings as we should perhaps go to the cinema today. There were few other forms of entertainment to compete with it and few that could compare with the spectacular hype and bizarre antics that both preachers and their audience got up to sometimes, and some of the sexual goings-on at some of these quote, revival-unquote meetings would make the couples on the back row seats in your local cinema blush. Many of the silly goings-on one finds in the modern charismatic movement and in the churches where the Toronto blessing is in vogue were the common fare of these quote, revival-unquote meetings. It was entertainment with a capital E, Perhaps the destructive shift in theology in the West from the Calvinistic orthodoxy established in the creeds of the Protestant churches to the Arminianism and antinomianism of the modern evangelical churches can, in some measure, be put down to the popularity of these kinds of meetings. The old Calvinistic theology was at first represented more in the churches, and the Arminianism and antinomianism found greater room for expression in the revival meetings as these revival meetings became a more important form of entertainment than church services, the theology that came to dominate them eventually came to be seen more as genuine Christian orthodoxy. The message being preached at the revival meetings was seen as more dynamic and relevant and had a highly experiential content that had an immediate effect on the senses and appetites of those who attended them. The new theology came eventually to be linked with a Lively faith and the old Calvinism with a dead orthodoxy. The popularity of big name preachers such as Wesley and their Methodist followers, who bought into both the Arminian theology and the revival type meetings, lent credibility to this bizarre type of religion. Eventually, the Arminian and antinomian theology of the revivalists became the new Christian consensus and orthodoxy. Today's Speaker's Corner is about all that is left of this swarm of media in Britain, certainly all that is recognised by most people as valid media of this kind. The efforts of modern-day street preachers are no longer seen as valid forms of communication, let alone as valid forms of media by most people. Such methods of propagating the Gospel are anachronistic and irrelevant. I am speaking here of the form of media used by Christians to get their message across to society not the form of communication the church should use as part of its ministry of equipping the saints for service. Obviously, preaching, in a sense of the authoritative teaching of the faith to the saints, is still, and will always be, an important part of the church's ministry. But, even in church, preaching, in a sense that we have come to understand the term, is no longer a form of media. Preaching, or pulpitteering as it has become, is no longer considered a form of media, even by Christians who attend church. And, therefore, they do not listen to it as a form of media. Often, it is merely something to be endured, even by church members. And, given the nature of much of this preaching, one can sympathise with this attitude. What is called preaching in most churches today is not the authoritative teaching of the scriptures anyway. It is a solemnised, an often not so solemnized form of what went on at the revival meetings, it bears little resemblance to the biblical ideal of preaching and teaching. Much modern quote, preaching unquote, is an anachronistic throwback to a form of media and in some cases merely a pale imitation of a form of entertainment that is no longer recognized as relevant, valid, authoritative, or even entertaining by society generally or even by Christians. This is why street preaching is so futile today, even embarrassing. It is anachronistic, the use of a form of media that is no longer relevant and that people no longer listen to. They listen, instead, to the television and radio and the newspapers. But Christians have never sought to conquer these modern forms of media in a systematic and competent fashion. There is not even the desire among many Christians to control, or even use, the media as a means of influencing society. There are, of course, quote, gospel, unquote, radio stations that play second rate Christian unquote music. But this is very difficult. It is not a serious alternative to the media that most people listen to as media. The aim of these Christian radio stations is usually not to provide a serious contender for the popular media that dominates society, but simply To provide alternative escapist entertainment programs, for example, Christian pop music for the retreating pietists of the Christian ghetto. The church never kept pace with developments in the media. It therefore lost control of the media as a means of transmitting the message of God's word to society. It lost control of the media, and as a result, it lost influence in society. Like the dinosaurs, The churches have now nearly become extinct as a social force in modern society. They have become irrelevant, impotent, a joke in the eyes of society. Had they kept hold of the old truths upon which the faith is built, instead of caving into liberalism and kept pace with modern developments in the media as a means of transmitting those truths to society, we might still have had a Christian culture. Instead, the church junked the timeless truth of God's word for modern liberal theology and held on for dear life to outdated forms of communication which in the end have become forms of non-communication for most people such a course was guaranteed to result in the failure of the church's mission a failure that is now so evident in western society Section 5 Preaching and Preachers In the quote Reformed unquote Churches things are a little different. The pulpit is still seen as central to the life of the church by most Reformed Christians today, but even in these churches, preaching is not seen in the same way that 17th century Puritans saw preaching. The, quote, primacy of preaching, unquote, today in most Reformed churches is a very different notion from pre-enlightenment, pre-revival and pre-romantic, that is, reformation notions of the primacy of preaching. Neither is it seen as media, even by Christians who adhere to the primacy of preaching idea. Preaching has lost its cutting edge as media, even among those groups that wish to maintain its status as central to the life of the Church. Even from a practical point of view, regardless of what theories and notions people might have of its importance, it is quite impossible for preaching to have the same status in a largely non-Christian non-church-going society that it once had in a largely Christian society in which the membership of the church was virtually the entire population. Some still talk of the primacy of preaching, but the church has failed to move on. The modern notion of the primacy of preaching can only have meaning where preaching is the media or an important form of media for society as a whole. I do not want to be misunderstood at this point. In the life of the church, in her educational program and mission, in her educational program and mission to the nation and mission to the world, the biblical concepts of teaching and preaching should have a central role. I am not denying this. I think teaching and preaching are vitally important and central to the life and mission of the church. But I am saying that preaching and teaching do not necessarily have to be done from a church pulpit in order to be valid means of communicating the gospel and the word of God, either to church members or to society generally. In the life of the institutional church, teaching is a central activity and preaching is central to the institutional church's calling in the world. But the way in which this is done needs to move on with developments in the way that information is communicated generally in society if it is to remain relevant if the church does not move on with the times and make use of developments in information technology that society generally adopts it will lose control of the media it will lose control of the media it needs to use in order to communicate the gospel effectively in fact this is precisely what has happened i am not speaking here of the message but merely of the means of communicating that message the content of the gospel does not change. Its public, official declaration must not cease. But the method of delivery, the way in which this proclamation of the word of God is presented, needs to change with the times in order for the church to be able to communicate the message as widely and as effectively as possible. The church needs to take advantage of every means available for the transmission of the word of God to society. Not to do this is to fail to obey Scripture itself. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more, and to the Jew I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews to those who are under the law as under law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without law as without law though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. End quote. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-22 Paul was prepared by all means, that is, in every way possible, to preach the gospel to those who had not heard it. Some years ago, I had a conversation with a friend who had taken up street preaching. He was a reformed believer and his message was orthodox. I suggested to him that this method of street preaching was no longer an effective way to communicate the message of the gospel to society. Most people do not stop to listen, and those who preach in the streets are preaching to the wind most of the time, if not to raspberries. I suggested that he could reach more people who are prepared to listen if he were willing to speak on the local radio. I had, at the time, contact with several local radio stations. I offered to put his name forward as a speaker, since, on many occasions, I was asked to suggest possible speakers for various programmes. The response I got was that such a method of communicating the Gospel was not biblical, that the Bible commands us to preach in the streets, not on the radio and that we must obey the Bible. But, of course, the Bible does not command us specifically to preach on the streets, as if this were the God-ordained method of preaching to the masses. It does give us the example of God's servants preaching on the streets, because this was the media of their day, the way everyone communicated their message to society, including the official messengers of kings and princes, and the Bible commands us to communicate the gospel as effectively as possible to the world. People stopped to listen to street preaching in New Testament times because this was a socially relevant method of communication. That was how people got their news. It was the media of the day. Paul and others used this method because it was the media of the day, not because it is inherently correct or divinely ordained. They used the method in vogue, which everyone else used. To say that what the Bible gives us is a fixed method of proclaiming the message in this way is to misread the Bible, to decontextualize it and strip it of its relevance. Would Paul or any of the apostles refuse to use the radio today when there are streets to preach on? Impossible! They would have used the most effective means available to them to get the message across to as many people as possible. Furthermore, the quote, primacy of preaching in the Reformed churches has now been transformed into the primacy of the preacher. This is unbiblical. What counts in the eyes of many Christians today, both preachers and listeners, particularly in Reformed circles, is the performance of the preacher. For some, if the performance is not to their specifications, it is not true preaching. For such, it is no longer the message that is the content of the message, God's word, that the Holy Spirit uses to convince people of their sin and need for Christ, but the antics of the preacher. Thus, we have the modern Reformed emphasis on preaching as, quote, event, unquote, rather than as the communication of the word of life. If the event is not up to scratch, and the preacher does not jump up and down like a monkey and generally make a fool of himself, the Holy Spirit cannot work. This concept of preaching admirably demonstrates the influence of existentialism and romanticism on the Reformed churches, despite much bravado about being true to the Reformation. It demonstrates also a perspective that differs from the charismatic movement only on details rather than basic orientation. It is the experience of preaching, the impression imparted to the listener by the gyration and perspiration of the preacher, that really does the job and brings the listener into contact with God. God the Holy Spirit does not work by opening the listener's mind to the truth of God's word, thereby convicting him of sin and righteousness, but by moving him with emotions generated through the impressive performance of the preacher. It is not a work of conviction, but of emotional experience, of arousal by egocentric oratory, and merely another form of entertainment worship the preacher is expected to jump up and down in the pulpit, shout at his audience, cajole and harangue them, and generally act like an imbecile. And, of course, the members of the congregation are then expected to act like imbeciles by complimenting the preacher on his, quote, unction, unquote, on their way out after the service. I heard one preacher say, quote, I've crowed like a cockerel in the pulpit to get my message across, end quote. And this was a minister who abominates charismatic worship and the Toronto Blessing. Animal noises are a speciality at Toronto, at the Toronto Blessing Sessions. What's his problem? Many such preachers will tell us they are willing to make fools of themselves for Christ, as did this preacher, but of course there is a difference between being prepared to be labelled a fool by non-believers for believing the truth and being justly called a fool by discerning men, regardless of whether they are such antics only make the gospel and the Christian faith look foolish and are, in a sense, blasphemous since they expose the faith to ridicule by God's enemies. The experientialism of revivalism is what this form of preaching is all about. It is basically a charismatic perspective. Lloyd-Jones, the darling of the modern Reformed movement in Britain, demonstrated this by his adoption of charismatic theology later in life, a fact that embarrassed many of his followers but need not, since their differences with the charismatics are really very superficial. Those Reformed worthies of the past, who did not embrace this notion of preaching, would go down like a lead shot in many of these modern Reformed churches, though since they are now dead, they can be venerated with impunity. We can always imagine them preaching like they had ants in their pants. By all accounts, New Testament accounts that is, Paul himself would have failed to come up to modern reformed standards of preaching, since he was reputed among the churches to have had an unimpressive personal presence, no charisma, and no oratorical skills worth mentioning. In other words, he was a poor preacher in the modern sense. See Second Corinthians chapter ten, verse ten. His power was in his message, not in his performance. Few were entertained. Many were converted, and many more were hopping mad after hearing him. I suspect he would have scored low in personal communication skills by modern secular humanist standards, which, unfortunately, are too often the standards used by Christians. At the root of this notion of preaching is the unwillingness of men to use their minds in worship, a basic aspect of the great commandment of our Lord. As our Lord restated it, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, compare Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Preaching as experience, or event, or whatever modern-day, quote, reformed, unquote, people choose to call it, is simply a form of entertainment worship in which the, quote, worshipper, unquote, is passive and in which he does not have to exert any effort. It's all done for him by the preacher who creates this spiritual Event, unquote. Its concession to the existentialist spirit of the age is no less real than the notion of worship embraced by the charismatic churches. It is experiential religion. The emphasis is not on faithfully practising the precepts of the faith in one's life, and preaching is not primarily aimed at securing this effect by equipping Christians to pursue it, but rather on producing an existential experience in the listener, which, doubtless, it is hoped will produce some kind of effect in the listener's life, though what that effect should be is rather vaguely understood. But, like all experiences, the, quote, event, unquote, of preaching diminishes in its effects the further one gets from the experience. Regular attendance at church, of course, overcomes this, But when the great preacher dies and his replacement has not got the charisma to carry this sort of thing off, the church goes into a nosedive. What held it together was not so much the truth of God's word and the purpose of the ministry, and the purpose of the ministry was not to equip the saints for service by imposing the wisdom of God's word in a relevant way, that is, in a way that is relevant to the everyday lives of the congregation, but rather the event, the Experience of the preaching. Countless examples could be given. Of course, such churches are few and far between, and those who can travel to their New Jerusalem every now and then live Christian lives that are a mere shadow of the lives of those who bask in the reflected glory of these super preachers. Unfortunately, these great churches never seem to transform society, despite the thousands that attend or come under their ministries through cassette tape distribution, etc. It does not seem to have occurred to these Christian gurus that something is missing. The cult of personality, even Christian personalities, cannot change society, for that the real thing is needed. Commitment to the message of the gospel by the church membership and a willingness to live it out in their daily lives. The preacher cannot do this for them, he can only instruct them and equip them for it. Too many are content to leave it all to the event of preaching, that is, the charisma of the preacher, backed up by the midweek prayer meeting where necessary. Religion on Sundays and Wednesdays. In this sense, modern Reformed religion, contrary to the religion of the Reformers, emphasises sacramental grace every bit as much as traditional Episcopal churches, only for the modern Reformed believer, the sacrament at the centre of the faith, what gives the faith its meaning and purpose and around which the Christian life resolves is, quote, Reformed, unquote, preaching. This emphasis on entertainment preaching and the preacher, on preaching as a sacrament, is now what it means by the primacy of preaching, the careful teaching and relevant application of the faith to the real issues that face most members of the Christian congregations is avoided at all costs. Such teaching demands the engagement of the mind in worship on the part of the congregation, and then action, sacrifice for the cause of the kingdom, as the congregation puts into effect what has been learned. To expect this is one sure way to get your megachurch into a nosedive that will end with the preacher looking for a new job. So the status quo quote reformed unquote, preaching is peddled endlessly instead, and its recognition as true quote, unction unquote, is all that is required of the reformed believer if he is to be numbered among God's elect. At best, such preaching is anachronistic. Pulpiteering is no longer in vogue. Society no longer listens. Such preaching has no real effect on society. The reformed preacher may think he is preaching the gospel, if only to the converted, but he will only keep his job if he keeps off the congregation's toes and titillates them each week with new manifestations of unction. Is this, in any degree, really what the New Testament requires of the church and of those who preach the gospel? Biblical Preaching and Teaching The New Testament word translated as preach is keruso. There are three basic words in this word group that appear in the New Testament. Kerux, a herald, public messenger. caruso, to be a herald, make proclamation as a herald, that is, to preach. And kerygma, what is proclaimed by a herald, a proclamation, public notice, that is, preaching. Both the act of proclaiming and the content of the proclamation. Ketel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament has some very interesting comments about these words, which I shall cite at length. Quote, 1. Kerux, The herald who plays so important a part in the Greek world is of little account in the New Testament. The word only occurs three times, and always in later writings. Jesus is never called the Kerux Theos, herald or preacher of God, though Paul is, though Paul is, kerux kai apostolos, kai didaskalos, herald, preacher, and messenger, apostle, and teacher. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 11, compare also 1 Timothy 2 verse 7 and some manuscripts of Colossians 1 Noah, who is regarded as God's herald in Judaism, is called kerox dikaiosunai, preacher of righteousness, in 2 Peter 2 verse 5, because by word and deed he summoned his contemporaries to repentance some 120 years before the coming flood. Noah is also described as a herald in 1 Chronicles 7, 6 and 9, 4. How are we to explain the reserve with which the Bible views the term? In many respects, kerex seems to be a very suitable word to describe the Christian preacher. It has many links with Apostolos, Messenger, Apostle, and is also at many points an equivalent of Evangelos, one bringing good news. Nevertheless, the New Testament manifestly avoids it. Why? The point is that it does not really fit the person of the one who proclaims the word, for the true preacher is God or Christ himself. Hence, there is little place for the herald. The Bible is not telling us about human preachers, It is telling us about the preaching. Furthermore, the prior Greek history gives too specific a meaning to Kerox. The New Testament world knows nothing of sacral personages who are inviolable in the world. The Herald was considered inviolable. He was not to be harmed or mistreated by those to whom he came, and to lay hands on him was a great offence. Stephen C. Perks The messengers of Jesus are like sheep delivered up to wolves. Matthew 10 verse 16 As the Lord was persecuted, so his servants will be persecuted. John 15 verse 20 The servants of Christ are, as it were, dedicated to death. Revelation 12 verse 11 But the message is irresistible. 2 Timothy 2 verse 9 It takes its victorious course through the world. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1 Hence, Keresai is more important than Kerux. In the New Testament 2. Caruso When we today speak of the proclaiming of God's word by men, we almost necessarily think of preaching and, with few exceptions, Luther always used this word, predigen, in translation of kerysai. The New Testament is more dynamic and varied in its modes of expression than we are today. Friedrich, the author of this article in Cattell's Theological Dictionary, cites... 28 different terms and phrases besides the Caruso word group that the New Testament uses to convey the idea of proclaiming the word of God, and concludes, Naturally, there are differences between these verbs, but our almost exclusive use of preach for all of them is a sign not merely of poverty of vocabulary, but of loss of something which was a living reality in primitive Christianity. Furthermore, and of significance for the argument of this essay, Quote, even if we disregard the other terms and restrict ourselves to preach in translation of Carisai, the word is not a strict equivalent of what the New Testament means by Kirisai. Kirisai does not mean the delivery of a learned and edifying or hortatory discourse in well-chosen words and a pleasant voice. It is the declaration of an event. Its true sense is to proclaim, and it is because Karisai has this sense that we may understand why, like Evangelion, Good News, and Ethangel, Ethangel, Euangelid, Zu, to announce Good News, it does not occur in the Johannine writings except at Revelation 5 verse 2. John prefers Martyron to bear witness, testify. From the standpoint of this eschatology, Martyron is better adapted than the dramatic and efficacious herald's cry to describe witness to that, quote, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled. 1 John 1 verse 1. Compare John 3 verse eleven, fifteen verse 27. It is in keeping with the content of John and the Hebrews that Kirissi is not used. We find it nine times in Matthew 14, in Mark 9, in Luke 8, in Acts, with another four, in Acts 1, verse 2, 16, verse 14, 17, verse 15, and 19, verse 14, 17, in Paul, another two in pastoral epistles, once in First Peter, and once in Revelation. The verb occurs 61, 65 times in all the New Testament. If we compare these figures with those for keryx and Kerygma, we are led already to some conclusions as to the theological significance of the terms. Emphasis does not attach to the kerygma as though Christianity contains something decisively new in content, a new doctrine, or a new view of God, or a new cultus. The decisive thing is the action, the proclamation itself, for it accomplishes that which was expected by the Old Testament prophets. The divine intervention takes place through the proclamation. Hence, the proclamation itself is the new thing. Through it, the Vasileiae, tau Theos, Kingdom of God, comes. 3. kerygma, As Matthew 12, verse 41, Luke 11, 32, has been correctly rendered kuhartorio encouragement, exhortario, exhortation, predicatio, proclamation, the preaching of Jonah was followed by the repentance of the Ninevites. At 1 Corinthians 2 verse 4, kerygma is the act of proclaiming. Christian preaching does not persuade the hearers by beautiful or clever words, otherwise it would only be a matter of words. Preaching does more. It takes place in the spirit and in power. It is thus efficacious. In the short mark ending, however, the reference to kerygma is to content the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. The sacred and incorruptible kerygma is in some sense a doctrine which treats of eternal salvation, yet this does not exclude the possibility that the message which thus treats of salvation or proclaims it may also affect it. This is at least the meaning in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. The foolish message of Jesus crucified saves those who believe. At First Corinthians 15 verse 14, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the content of the kerygma. At Revelation 16 verse 25 too, the reference is to the message with a very definite content. The Gospel of Paul is identical with that which Jesus himself preached during his earthly life. In Titus 1.3, kerygma is actus predicandi, the act of proclaiming by preaching is manifested the Word which brings to man the eternal life that was promised. The Kerygma is the mode in which the divine Logos comes to us. What is clear from all this is that there is no office of preacher or herald, Keryx, in the New Testament church. It is the apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors and teachers who preach the Word of God, Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following. The term Preacher or herald, Karex, occurs only three times and the herald had no official status in the church. There is no office of preacher in the New Testament church. The officers of the church who engage in preaching are the apostles, evangelists, prophets, pastors and teachers. The activity of preaching, the proclamation of God's word, however, is very important. But Caruso, to preach is nowhere in the New Testament used to denote the discharge of the office of a herald. It means to publish, proclaim openly, and refers to the public proclamation of the gospel and matters pertaining to it. It is the proclamation, that is, of primary importance, the publishing of the gospel, not the style or method of the preacher, nor the context in which it is done, all of which are secondary matters that must be geared to making the proclamation of the word as effective as possible. Nevertheless, preaching is only one means among many of communicating the gospel to the world. What is of primary importance in the New Testament is that the message, the Word of God, is proclaimed and made known somehow. Street preaching was an important form of official media in New Testament times. It is to be expected that the apostles would take their message out onto the streets and proclaim it openly. This was the way news and important information was made known to people. Not to have done this would have been to fail to make use of one of the most effective means available for spreading the message of good news to the world. The open and clear proclamation of the word of God must never cease. It is the means God has ordained by which the word of life is transmitted to those who are being saved. In this sense, preaching must never cease. The authoritative proclamation of the word of God is central to the calling of the church. But the method of doing this is not the primary consideration. That the message is proclaimed as effectively as possible somehow is the important point. This means that all forms of media open to the church in her task of proclaiming the gospel are valid. The church is not tied in specifically to a particular method of preaching. Neither are we told in the New Testament that in proclaiming the Word of God, preaching, one must preach from a pulpit, preach in a particular way or style, that one must not sit but stand and use one's whole body, Lloyd Jonesism, that one must have an introduction and three points, that one must be as animated and as agitated as possible, that one must shout and harangue those listening, that one must always wear a shirt and tie or suit. To stress such things is Pharisaism. The emphasis in the New Testament is rather on communicating the truth of God's word as effectively as possible, and all other things are to be subordinated to this goal. All possible means open to the church of communicating the gospel are valid. Preaching, in the sense of what the minister does in the pulpit each Sunday, is one such means, but there are other means and methods open to the church and in emphasising one or other of these methods, the Church should take into consideration the effectiveness of the means used. This may mean abandoning some traditional means of communicating the Gospel to the non-believing world in favour of methods that are more culturally relevant and therefore more effective in contemporary society. Furthermore, preaching in the New Testament is not what is understood as preaching in most Church services today that is, an exposition or homily from the pulpit. It is rather the simple declaration of the pure word of God. It was important that a kerox, a herald or preacher, did not embellish or exaggerate his master's message or enter into negotiations with those to whom he was sent. His duty was to declare the message simply and plainly, to deliver it exactly as he heard it from his master. Reading or directly quoting scripture, Is the purest form of preaching. All explanations and exegesis of the text are a move away from biblical preaching. Exposition and exegesis do not fit the New Testament category of preaching. Preaching in the New Testament is the simple declaration of the pure Word of God. We have no New Testament examples of preaching that are not the plain proclamation of the undiluted Word of God. Exegesis is not preaching neither is exposition of course exegesis and exposition are activities of central importance to the purpose and task of the church ministry exegesis and exposition is the task of the teacher which is an office in the new testament church the term exegesis comes from the greek word exegestai meaning to reveal interpret narrate unfold in teaching which is used in the new testament but in the new testament Preaching is the proclamation of the message of the gospel simply and purely. It is not exegesis in the modern reformed sense. It is not expository preaching, in other words, but the formal proclamation of the gospel. It is declaration, not exposition. Lest there should be any misunderstanding, let me make it clear that I believe exegesis and exposition of scripture are vitally important and central to the ministry of the church. In fact, such teaching is what should happen each Sunday in the church service. Exegesis of Scripture is the function of the teacher and a primary aspect of the church's ministry to the saints. The office of teacher is fundamental and vital to the life of the institutional church. But such exposition and exegesis of Scripture for the purpose of equipping the saints for service, Ephesians four eleven 12 is very different from what passes for preaching in most churches today and is to be distinguished from the formal proclamation of the gospel, preaching, required of the church in the New Testament. This is why I believe the notion of the primacy of preaching in modern Reformed churches is seriously astray from the biblical ideal. It is a notion, indeed an ideology, that has taken on a life of its own, quite independent of any real connection with what the New Testament sets forth as either teaching, exegesis, or preaching, or preaching. Proclamation. It has become the primacy of the preacher, and in reformed circles, this wayward notion of preaching has become an end in itself, rather than a means of communicating the gospel. What is of importance in this ideology of preaching is the sermon itself, preaching as an art form, the preacher's performance, and the audience's experience of the event, that is, the impressions. An emotion such preaching arouses in them. These ideas are openly promoted and encouraged in popular Reformed manuals on preaching and preachers. It is all about the cultivation of an art form geared to creating the right existential experience in the audience, and, as in most modern art forms following the Romantics, the performance of the artist is what is considered of paramount importance. The church must return to the biblical ideal if it is to communicate the gospel effectively. It must seek to communicate the gospel to the world by the most effective means possible. There is no mileage in trying to get people into church by titillating them with prancing pulpiteers. Even if this succeeds in getting people into the church in the short term, which is increasingly unlikely due to its decline both as a form of media and entertainment, it will achieve very little in the long term. Any revival in the church's fortunes as a result of such endeavours will come to an end when the preacher leaves for better pastors or drops dead. The church must be built on a surer foundation, the foundation of the teaching of the apostles and prophets, the word of God, Ephesians 2, verse 20. Conclusion Why all this talk about preaching when the subject is the media and the church's future. Because it is necessary to deal with a misconception before we can get back to the correct conception of the task before the church. From the time that preaching in the modern sense ceased to be a major form of media in Western society, Christians have not had the financial strength to control the media. Certainly, they did not have the financial strength in the 20th century. The church lost control of the media Never invested in the new forms of media that took the place of preaching in society. Now the Church cannot afford to be a significant player in the modern media world, but if we are to rebuild society effectively as a Christian society, we need to think and act strategically. If we are to proclaim Christ to the world effectively, we need access to the media. At the beginning of the 21st century, however, and this is the important point, the media is again undergoing vast changes. New developments are taking shape in computer technology that will change the shape of the media in the 21st century. This new computer technology will be the media of the future, and this technology is now coming within financial reach of most churches, even within the reach of most individuals. These developments are taking place at an exponential rate. The church must be ready, willing and able to take advantage of the opportunities this new technology brings. It will likely be the mass media for the next century. If Christians do not seize the day the church may decline for another century, entrenched, old-fashioned attitudes will not help us. We cannot relax and hope that people will start coming to church again to listen to, quote, great preaching, unquote. People no longer listen. We are commanded to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. Mark 16 verse 15 Not to wait until the world comes into the church. It is vitally important that people come under the ministry of God's word if they are to be saved and society is to be Christian once again. But listening to traditional pulpit preaching in church services is not the only means of bringing people under the ministry of God's word. And perhaps in future it will not be the main or most effective means of doing so. We must use the new media to communicate the word of God to the world. It is the truth of God's word that convicts, that the Holy Spirit uses to bring men to faith. Therefore, men can only be saved as they are brought into contact with this word. If we are to do this effectively, we must use the most culturally relevant means of communication available. By all means we must communicate the word of God to the world. It is the proclamation of that word that saves men, societies and nations. While the church prizes and worships irrelevant and extra-biblical notions of preaching and the preachers who thrive on such misconceptions, rather than the effective communication of God's word, she will fail to proclaim the gospel. Indeed, such failure is precisely what much so-called great preaching has brought us. The emphasis has moved away from God's word and its requirements in our lives to men and their ideas and often what prevails as preaching is no more than the cult of personality. The battle for the rebuilding of Christian society and culture will be fought on two fronts in the 21st century, education and the media. These two fronts are two fronts of the same battlefield and they are coming closer together all the time now. The battle for society will not be won in the church. Most people don't go to church anymore. The church must go into the world with the gospel. The battle for society will be won when the church goes out into the world, which is precisely what Christ commanded. Mark 16 verse 15 The battle for society used to be won in the pulpit many generations ago, but those days have gone. Then the membership of the church was society. Not any more. We must take the timeless truth of God's word into the 21st century using the means, the media that people now look to for their information, news and general worldview. If the church does not take to the field and engage in the battle, there are plenty of other religions and ideologies that will. The Muslims and secular humanists are more active and aggressive today than the church in proclaiming their teachings and worldview and in claiming the lives of individuals and society. I believe that the New Testament supports this understanding of the Church's task because that is precisely what the Apostles and Prophets did in terms of their contemporary culture. They used the media available and relevant to their age and culture. So must we. This means that Christians must wake up to reality and stop living in the past. We must seize on the new technological developments in media and information technology and use them effectively to bring the message of God's Word to a world desperately in need of it. For the Church not to do this is to fail in her great commission to go into all the world and preach the
1: Gospel to the whole creation. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts